Good morning and uh, welcome to College Road this morning. I'm super excited about our next sermon series. We're beginning a new sermon series, just completed the book of Romans, and uh, today we're going to be starting a uh, new series entitled Urban Legends. You ever know someone who uh, claims to have seen Bigfoot's tracks? What about maybe they've been studying up and doing research on Nessie, the monster that apparently people believe lived in Loch Ness? Of course, almost every kid has heard that there are alligators in the sewers in New York City. You know how it goes? Somebody sees something and they tell someone else about it and then they tell someone else about it, and then that person tells someone else about it, and on and on and on it goes until it's really hard to separate fact from fiction. Well, this doesn't just happen with alligators and with Bigfoot and with monsters in bodies of water. It also happens with spiritual truths as well. So over the next several weeks, we're going to take some of these spiritual myths and try to separate fact from fiction, and hopefully we'll debunk some of these myths along the way. Many times now these myths do not originate with someone that is intentionally trying to mislead other people. Now sometimes it will, but for the most part it may even actually originate with a scripture passage. But usually what we'll find is it is a passage of scripture that has been completely and totally misunderstood or at least misinterpreted. So I want to see what the Bible actually says about these topics. And then I want us to try to figure out where does this myth come from, and then ultimately let's figure out what does that passage of of Scripture really mean in its context. So we're going to start with a popular myth today that many of you have probably heard, maybe you've even said, and it is the myth that God won't give us more than we can handle. What, What is the truth behind that is that a true statement that God won't give us more than we can handle well the apostle Paul didn't seem to think that was true because in 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 10 this is what he writes so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content for, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I'm strong that's not the testimony of someone who believes that they can handle no matter what the world throws at them that's the testimony of someone who recognizes that they're weak who recognizes that these things are bigger than us that we cannot handle many of the things that are coming as a matter of fact Paul kind of gives us an example of what it looks like to beg God to remove these things that are overwhelming and too much for us to handle. Clearly, he did not think he could handle this thorn in the flesh. He was essentially asking God 
to remove it, even though he recognized that it was God who allowed it to happen to him so he wouldn't be conceited because it would help him to know he can't do everything. God's clear message to him when he begged him to remove that thorn in the flesh was no. God wanted to remind Paul that apart from him, he could not handle it. So this, this whole concept of God won't give us more than we can handle is kind of debunked right here in this passage of Scripture. But you see it in many examples throughout Scripture. You see it with Noah. You see it with Joseph. You see it in many instances in Abraham's life, many times in David's life, certainly with Daniel in the lion's den. There was no way that Daniel could overcome the lions in that den. There was no way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could overcome the fiery furnace. No, these were things that were way out of their control. So if it isn't a biblical principle, then where does this myth come from? I believe, more than likely, it is a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which reads, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now look at this. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think that that line, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, is where many people get the idea that God won't give you more than you can handle. So what does this passage of Scripture really mean? Well, the verse before that, verse 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So the context here really is the whole concept of don't get conceited and how spiritually mature you are because it's pride that goes before a fall. We're all tempted. Those temptations are, as he says in verse 13, common to man. We experience them, all of us, just like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in all things, we see that those temptations were even common to him. And so we recognize the fact that temptation is real, that it is a strong pull towards desires of the flesh. And yet, we're also reminded here that God won't give us more temptation then ultimately what his word says is that he can handle if we'll trust in him. So here's what this passage of scripture is trying to tell us. Not that God won't give us more than we can handle, but it's trying to remind us first and foremost that you can conquer temptation. Not all of the different calamities or persecutions or, or illnesses and sickness and all of the pain and suffering and stuff. Not, not that that stuff will never be overwhelming. Not that it won't be too much for you to handle. He's specifically talking about temptation here. And, but here's what he reminds us right out of the gate there in verse 12. Even with the idea that you can conquer temptation, we're reminded you cannot rely on your own strength to do it. The strongest man that's ever lived would fail at this as well. Probably one of the greatest Christians that's ever lived, the Apostle Paul, struggled with this. We saw that from 2 Corinthians and, and the thorn in the flesh and just the, hey God, I want this to be removed, but ultimately it was there to help him not be tempted to be prideful, to be conceited. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, who thinks that he's strong, who thinks that he's got all the answers, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, stay on alert, be aware, be wise, lest 
he fall. Temptation's real. Spiritual warfare is real. There are demons that are out there tempting you with the evils of this world, the desires of our flesh. And when we are the most confident, that's when we find ourselves also to be the most vulnerable. And so God is reminding us that in our moments of pride, we are ultimately finding ourselves at the greatest weakness or vulnerability to fall into temptation. You cannot rely on your own strength, but you can rest on God's strength because his strength is perfect. See, in verse 13, he reminds us that all temptations common to man. What you're going through, the temptations that you have, they're not new. These are the same temptations that have always been there. First John chapter 2, verse 16 gives us the three categories of all the temptations that could ever be thrown at you. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and everything kind of fits into one of those three categories, and they all tend to end up struggling, causing us to struggle with selfishness, with self-centeredness, with making it all about us. If we see it, we want it. If it feels good, do it. And look how great I am. Look at everything I've accomplished. This was one of the ones that Paul struggled with himself. And God will not allow that temptation to overwhelm you if you'll draw near to him. But if you choose to try to do it on your own, then you're going to struggle. He will always, as he says here, provide a way for you to escape. But that way to escape is in him, not just in your ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't just simply decide, I'm not going to give in to temptation anymore. No, you must be willing to draw near to him and to rely upon his strengths. See, I, I never really enjoyed lifting weights. My son, who's a football player now, my oldest son, Will, loves it. I mean, he, he'd be in the weight room all the time. I never really enjoyed it. It was a necessary evil in sports and it certainly was good for building strength and for endurance, but it wasn't just something that I just sat around thinking, oh, I can't wait to get back in the weight room. But one of the things that I did love and need and depend upon when I was in the weight room, when I am lifting weights, is that if you're going to lift weights, one principle you must always follow is never do it alone. You cannot Put yourself at risk and in danger by going into the weight room and trying to lift especially free weights if you're going to go in by yourself. When I would attempt to do bench press, and I'm on rep 12 or 13 or 15, and I start making really weird noises, and I start straining really hard, and, and, and you're pushing as hard as you can, you're turning red, and you're forgetting to breathe, and all those things that are, that are necessary for being able to lift the, the weight, and you, you, you need to get that weight off of you but you get to a place where it becomes a real possibility that you're not going to be able to lift it anymore that that weight is going to come is going to become too heavy for you and there is the possibility that ultimately it will come crashing down on top of you and yet right about that time the person that you're working out with your friend that's been standing over you the whole time reaches out and grabs that bar and he reminds you, man, you keep pushing, but I've got you. you. You keep going, but I'm here. You do your best to push up these last reps, but the reality is I'm not going to let this fall on top of you. And then when you've reached your limit and you can't go on and your arms completely give out, it's your friend who takes that bar and lifts that bar up out of your hands and sets it back on the stand for you. 
you are totally dependent upon his strength at that point to relieve you of that overwhelming weight. Can I tell you, there is no greater friend to you than the Lord Jesus Christ, than our Father who's in heaven, than the Spirit of God that lives within you. And there are times in your life when you will absolutely not be able to overcome the overwhelming odds and temptation and difficulty that you may face. But God is able to take whatever that overwhelming weight is and say, don't worry, I've got you, and to lift it up. The, the, not only does the Bible not say that God won't give you more than you can handle, it reminds us that he consistently allows more than we can handle to come into our life so that we will be dependent upon him. You can conquer temptation if you draw near to him. Another principle that he gives us in this passage of scripture kind of reminds us of how to overcome temptation is this. You can commune with Christ. We saw that last week as we participated in, in uh, the Lord's Supper together. We were reminded of the sacrifice that was made for us so that we could have uh, a relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus. And in verse 14 through 18, Scripture says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not a participation in the, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread consider the people of israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar now what does this have to do with any of it well some of the things are very obvious and i think that's what we really ought to pay attention to here you can have communion with christ because christ has come to us because christ came and emptied himself took on the, fo the form of a man in the flesh and gave his life so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin, so that we could be given power over the temptations that this world throws at us. But it doesn't make any sense if God has set you free from that for you to constantly run towards temptation. So he starts off by reminding us that because of our communion with Christ, you need to run from sin, run to Christ, but run from sin. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If it's true, that we can conquer temptation, if it's true that he's provided a way of escape for us, then that escape is not in going to temptation. That escape is fleeing from temptation. Run from sin. Well, if you run from something, you need to run to something else. So what does he want us to run to? Well, this description uh, of clearly what is a uh, reminder and analogy of the Lord's Supper and all the sacrifices that have ever been made, but the ultimate sacrifice that was made in Jesus Christ is this. If you're going to run from sin, run to the Savior. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. You, you got common sense. You, you don't need to, if, if you have been set free in Christ, why would you run towards things that separate you from Christ? Why would you not run towards him? Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of of Christ when we take the Lord's Supper we're reminded of the sacrifice that was made for us so that we might be set free so that we might no longer be condemned so that we could have the forgiveness of sin 
And if you surrender your life to Christ and you participate together with him in holy communion and the opportunity for us to be reminded of what we have in Christ and we're participating in that, do we, why in the world would we want to run to sin? And he's saying everyone that comes to Christ drinks from the same cup. The temptations are common, but for those in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is common too. It only comes from one place. It comes from the shedding of the blood of Jesus. They ate from the same loaf, from the same bread. It was the body of Jesus that was broken, that was beaten, so that we might be set free. By his stripes, we are healed. You need to run from sin, from temptation, from idolatry, from selfishness, and you need to run to him. Because ultimately, he's our only hope. But here's the beautiful news. He also gave us each other. And not just those that are present here. Not just those in the building. Not just those watching online. Not just those in this modern day age. But all the saints that have come before us. That God has spoken to through his word. To give them truth. For them to be able to understand. And to live an example. And to be able to, to set markers for us. To strive for and to move towards. This is not a lone ranger faith like we talked about last week. There is individuality in, in salvation because I have been set free. But then ultimately living out this Christian life, we need each other. You can't do it on your own. You can commune with Christ and with other believers in order to accomplish what he wants to. There is commonality in the body of Christ. Paul spent much of Romans helping us to understand that the divisions in the world shouldn't divide us in the church because Christ brings us together. And, and then he begins to describe here in verses 17 and 18, there, there's one bread who are, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Reflecting back on Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1 through 17, and the peace offering where the priest would take that offering and for the whole body, for the whole community, for the whole family, they would sacrifice that animal and the blood would uh, be shed for the forgiveness of their sins. This ultimately was pointing us to Christ where his blood would be shed for our sins and that we would come together and recognize that our ability to overcome temptation is found in him and he gives us each other in order to help us walk through that, to encourage us, to hold us accountable and to see throughout church history how our forefathers have struggled with temptation and yet have come down on a firm stance on top of the word of God to know what are our doctrines? What are our beliefs? Why do we stand upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and everything the Bible teaches about the gospel and about how we're saved and about how God helps us to live the life we've been called to? As we move into summer and things around here are going to get super hot, I'm always reminded of the fact that we never really get a true winter here in Florida. I miss winter. I, I like cold weather. Not everybody in my family does. One of the things I miss about winter the most is uh, snow. I like snow i like making snow angels in the in the snow i like making snowmen i like having uh, making snow cream i like all sorts of stuff and 
And we lived in a, on, a, on a farm where I grew up, and we had lots of pasture land. And so when it would snow, it was just big white sheets all over the hillside. And we, we would walk through it, and my cousin and I used to play a lot uh, out there in the pasture, whether it was snowing or whether it was green or whatever the case was, running from cows and bulls and, and uh, all those sorts of things. And when it would snow, we would go out there. And I remember distinctly one time we were out in the field, and we were... Uh, we were like, hey, let's walk across the snow. You could see every footprint in the snow because it was just a perfect white sheet there on top, and we'd walk through there, and we were going to, hey, let's, let's walk from here to the other fence posts. I think we, to the other side of the, of the pasture to, to uh, one, a group of trees that was over there. And we're like, hey, let's walk over there, and so we did. So we walked straight over there, and we were kind of, we were kind of having a competition to see who could walk the straightest, and when we got there, he, we turned around and we looked, and his footprints were almost straight as an arrow. And, and my footprints were zigzagging all over the place. And I was like, man, how did you do that? You crushed me on this competition. And he was like, I mean, we started walking, and I just kept my eyes focused on this tree right here. And I was like, hmm, that's not what I did at all. As a matter of fact, the whole time I'm walking, I'm looking down at my feet trying to make sure that I'm putting one foot in front of the other that everything is as straight as an arrow. And what I realize is that as I'm watching myself, I'm going all over the place. But he's keeping his eyes on a fixed location, and he's walking towards that. Did you know that ultimately our fixed location in the Christian life is the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel? However, he has also given us markers from church history, from people that have been where we are, that have gone through the same temptations, those temptations that are common to man, and how they have trusted in the word of God and the true doctrines that we find in Scripture and have put those markers out for us to follow their example. Certainly biblical characters like the Apostle Paul, but many people throughout church history where we have seen their life and we have seen how they've lived and we can model after them just like Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because ultimately, everything we do ought to be pointing other people, not just lost, but the believers as well, to faith in Christ. And it helps us to remember that in our battle against temptation, in our battle against this, these spiritual principalities that we are fighting in this world, those demonic forces, it reminds us that you can choose godliness. Not because you're strong, but because God is strong. Verse 19 says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Again, keep in mind the context here is overcoming temptation. Why are we constantly trying to figure out how close we can get to sin without it being sin. Why would we not say, I'm going to flee from that idolatry. I'm going to run from it. There is freedom in Christ, but that freedom in Christ doesn't allow me to just go and do whatever I want to. It doesn't allow me to try to get as close to things I know I shouldn't do as possible and, and try to justify why I do it. You can, by the power of the Spirit of God living within you, choose godliness. That's not true for everyone. That's true only for believers. As a matter of fact, unbelievers will act like unbelievers. And that shouldn't shock us. The food that they have 
that's been offered to idols. There's no life in those idols. There's nothing true about those idols. There's nothing true about false teaching. There's nothing true about the, the fake gods of this world. And regardless of whether or not they want to devote their lives and offer sacrifices, maybe not in reality sacrifices, but, but as we think through figuratively them offering themselves to these idols, there's nothing real about those idols. They're not offering them to gods, but as Paul says here, they are offering themselves to the evil spirits of this age, to the evilness of this world. But he reminds us, don't be like that. Run from it. You know, it doesn't make, it doesn't really necessarily shock us that unbelievers act like unbelievers. But it should shock us when believers have a desire to act like the world. But that's just simply given into the temptation that God has provided a way for you to escape. Because believers should act like believers. We should act like we really do trust in God, that we've put our faith and trust in Him. Your common experience with these common temptations can't find its conclusion in you serving both Christ and the world. That's not possible. You, you can't make vows of allegiance to Christ and the evil spirits of this age. That's just not a possibility. You can't serve two masters. John tells us this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-7. through 7. He says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin can't serve two masters you, you can't claim to follow christ and look like the world unbelievers act like unbelievers that makes sense but believers should look totally different and, and god doesn't give us temptations that are greater than we can handle as long as we're trusting in him and leaning into him and trusting in his word and using what god has given us in the church to hold us accountable to encourage us temptations real the pull of the world is real the evil spirits of this world are a reality but they're no match for our god so the real question is not whether or not god gives us more than we can handle that's not that's not the true question the real question is whether or not we're dependent upon him no matter what the circumstances are no matter whether it's temptation or whether it's trials are you dependent upon God? Because ultimately, Paul said that's the whole reason why he had that thorn in the flesh, was so he'd be more dependent upon God. Not so that he would think he could overcome. It was there to keep him from being conceited. It was there to remind him he had to be dependent upon God. Do you remember watching Snow White as a child? I think probably the most notable line in that whole movie, the one that most people remember, is mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Would it surprise you to know that that isn't what the queen actually says? As she gazes at the glass, she demands an answer to this question. It's close, but it's not the same thing. Magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? We've probably misquoted that our whole lives that's not the only thing there's an often misquoted line in 
Field of Dreams, the movie with Kevin Costner, where the whispers to him, what we've always said is, if you build it, they will come. But that's not actually what the whisper said. The actual line is, if you build it, he will come. I mean, it's just off by one simple word, but man, we've been misusing it for a long time. Probably one of my favorites comes from a Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back. It's the iconic, Luke, I am your father. Darth Vader says that to Luke, or at least that's what we've been quoting for most of our lives. Many of you have probably said this line at some point in your life. Most of us said it into a box fan or some type of fan to sort of modulate our voice so we sound more like Darth Vader, but that's actually not what he said. As a matter of fact, he never even used the name Luke. The quote that he actually said was, No, I am your father. Words matter. It's very possible for us to make statements and change just a few words in a sentence and completely alter the meaning of that phrase. That's what happened with this myth that we're talking about today. Like many of those movie lines, if we were to just change one word, that myth becomes our reality. Instead of saying God won't give us more than we can handle, let's start reminding ourselves every day that God won't give us more than He can handle. That's what Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Don't miss this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's the question that every one of us ought to be asking ourselves today. Are we in Christ Jesus? If it's true that apart from him we can do nothing, if that's true, then this myth is most certainly a very dangerous one. Thinking that God won't give you more than you can handle will lead you into believing that you are self-sufficient. It'll lead you into believing that you can handle all of these things yourself. That could not be further from the truth. You cannot handle them. The whole point of the gospel is that you are hopelessly, helplessly lost without Him. It is only in recognizing your weakness that you will surrender and experience his strength when we are the most vulnerable god is sufficient his grace overcomes if you've never put your faith and trust in the lord jesus christ then you don't have hope you cannot handle it you will be overwhelmed but if you surrender to christ his strength is perfect god in his grace through his gospel, because of his son, offers you a way of escape. So if you're watching this here today, can I just encourage you? Don't try to do it yourself. Run to Jesus. Run to the Savior. Let him give you the power to overcome temptation, to flee idolatry, to live the life he created you to live, to be the church member and the family member and the citizen that God wants you to be for his glory and for his kingdom don't try to do it yourself you can't do it but run to him he can do it
Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you just for the chance to be able to really dig into your word and know that sometimes the things that we think aren't the things that you've said. Sometimes the things that we believe aren't what you're really teaching us. So God, as we wrestle with the fact that we can't handle it on our own, help us to trust in you. God, I pray for those that may never put their faith and trust in you. May they surrender their lives to you today. May they not hesitate. May they not wait. May they not waver. May they not worry about what everyone's going to think. And may they run to the only one who can fix their problem, to Jesus Christ our Savior. Help them to follow him today. God, I pray that you would help those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus to stop trying to get you to take away all the problems in our life and to start leaning into you no matter what circumstances we're going through. God, may we be found faithful to you because we know you are always faithful to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word and thank you for truth. May we find hope and rest in the truth. Not in the things that everybody tells us is true, but in what you have revealed to us to be true. God, have your way in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.